This is going to be a long video, so I recommend that you strap yourselves in. I did a response video to The Wasteland of Jordan Peterson by Big Joel. I've never heard of this person before, and his video is a 33 minute video, and my video is a direct response to his, plus then I realized that he was talking about some pretty serious things because I didn't realize that when I first started watching, and I wanted to dig a bit deeper in order to give a proper response so if you want to hear someone respond in a very well thought out way versus just roasting someone then you could decide to watch this video if you're looking for entertainment then this is probably not the best video sorry i already recorded it and responded and then this is me going back again because I realized it would take much more effort than I initially thought it would. So, welcome to Just Thinking Out Loud. My name is Desiree. Oh my god. What am I doing? I came across a video called The Wasteland of Jordan Peterson. I actually haven't watched it yet. I saw someone else watching it and I was hearing bits and pieces. And the more I heard, the more perturbed I got. And so I thought I should probably do a response video. I'm gonna watch it and I might give some comments while I'm watching it. And then I will also at the end sort of review. I think it's a pretty long video and I leave a description. So I'll leave a link in the description so that you can find it for yourself as well. Hey everybody, um, this is the second video in my four-part series where I'm just telling you some meandering little stories about YouTube conservatism. I don't consider Jordan Peterson conservative. I remember him talking about UBI at one point. He was talking about trying to solve the issues around automation through programs to help people. I completely consider that the opposite of right-wing. Right-wing also has government programs but they're more focused on personal responsibility and their government programs are more like protection that kind of stuff and just as a disclaimer if you're a fan of peterson's who's bothered by the fact that i've categorized him as a conservative i really wouldn't worry about it too much i'll explain more in a footnote that i've written but i really wouldn't worry about it you know just take a walk on the wild side entertain a big joel video and with that, uh, let's get started. So when I was in my first semester of college, I read T.S. Eliot's The Wasteland in an introductory English class. While the poem is renowned for being complicated, filled with allusions to canonical works, different languages, archetypal figures, pretentious stuff like that, I think the basic story Eliot tells is a simple one. The world around us is a wasteland. In the wake of World War I, and under the crushing weight of modernity, we have found ourselves fragmented and without moral center. What are the roots that clutch? What branches grow out of this stony rubbish? Son of man, you cannot say or guess, for you know only a heap of broken images. As the poem progresses, we navigate this world, one fixated on image, but image without substance. We have taken the narratives that give our lives meaning and purpose and replaced them with easily consumable trash. Are you alive or not? Is there nothing in your head? 
But oh, 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 that Shakespearean rag. It's so elegant, so intelligent. There is no water here, no spiritual sustenance, no way to create meaning. It's a wasteland. So naturally, we're left with a question. How do we get out of it? And the answer Eliot gives is, we have to fix ourselves. See, this poem is, at its core, a Fisher King narrative from Arthurian legend. The kingdom is in disrepair because the king is injured. And to become well again, to make the world well again, the king must hear the right words. In this case, data daidvam damyata, translated from Sanskrit, we must give, sympathize, and control. This is how we can leave the wasteland, can heal the kingdom. And at the very least, by holding close to these ideals, we can set our own lands in order. We can shore some fragments against the ruins. I sat upon the shore, fishing, with the arid plain behind me. Shall I at least set my lands in order? So, I love this poem. I loved reading it and hearing what the professor had to say. I think it hit me at the right time in my life, and it's just one of those things that pops into my minds every few weeks. Data diadvom damyata. In general, I just think they're really good words to live by, and there's something so pleasing and elegant in their message. What's more, and I know this is kind of personal, but the wasteland reminds me of my dad, who died around six months ago. Not just because my dad loved T.S. Eliot when he was around my age, and loved pretentious stuff, and loved talking about archetypes, but also because I don't think he was a particularly happy man. I don't want to get too deep into this stuff, and I don't want to present you some biased image of my father, but he was generally pretty invested in his problems, in his discomfort and social anxiety, in his feeling that the world was pitted against him. What's more, he put a lot of stock in the idea that he could find some big solution to those problems. He was very invested in Buddhism and psychoanalysis and self-help books. And so, after he died, I almost immediately began to connect his life to the story of the Fisher King. To me, it seemed that, like the Fisher King, my father was injured, that his world was injured because of it, and that he was on a quest to find the words that would heal him. And I wondered, you know, what would have been the right words for him? I just wanted to pause this because I'm a little worried out that it's called the Wasteland of Jordan Peterson, and he's coming already from a personal perspective. I suppose that it makes sense in the context of Jordan Peterson because Jordan Peterson does do a lot of... Uh, he Well, he's a psychologist, and he has done therapy with many people, and that comes through in his work, and his work is about helping people navigate their lives. So I guess that's why he starts off so personal, but I definitely wasn't expecting that. What would have healed his kingdom? And maybe Elliot was right. Maybe what my father needed to hear and listen to was as simple as give, sympathize, control. I don't know. So why did I start off this video with this incredibly long and annoying intro? Well, it's because I wanted to explain why, on some level, I'm attached to this stuff. This language was useful to me in my life, and it reminds me of my dad. 
And the reason that's important is that if it turns out that the ideology of the wasteland doesn't work, if there's something in it that we can't accept, if we can't look to it for all of our answers, then there's something to mourn here, right? And there's something about that statement. I have to, this is the third time I'm going to replay it because there's something about what he just said. This language was useful to me in my life and it reminds me of my dad. And the reason that's important is that if it turns out that the ideology of the wasteland doesn't work, if there's something in it that we can't accept, if we can't look to it for all of our answers, then there's something to mourn here, right? Okay, I think I know what it is. He's talking about a story and a book and something that gave him meaning when it came to his own life and especially because it reminded him of his dad who had social issues but tried to work on himself to fix it. However, what he just described about being disappointed in an ideology because it doesn't give you the answers to everything, I don't think that he should have put that kind of faith into an ideology in the first place. Something like that is all encompassing i'm not sure it even exists on earth i think most people look for it in religion and so already i don't know where he's going with this i have an idea but because i heard a bit of the clips like very a very short time or like five minutes of it that made me want to respond to this video um so i'm not sure where he's going with it but but I am already asking the question, why would you be disappointed if an ideology didn't give you some all-serving meaning for life? That's religion, and that's also something that religion says it can give you, but I don't really think it can. I think it sort of is a salve for this aching need that humanity has and I don't think can really be solved by anything man-made, which religion is. I'm not sure that there is something that's not man-made that can solve it, but I do know that nothing man-made can because people are so flawed. So I'm not sure why he would be disappointed that this ideology from the wasteland didn't give him everything he was looking for because I don't think you can really find that in an ideology. Something to mourn here, right? And maybe I'm the only one who feels that way, but something tells me I'm not. Anyway, over the last few months, I've watched a lot of videos by Jordan Peterson, and this is a story about that. There's a really interesting video. I should give my own background. I've also watched a lot of videos from Jordan Peterson. I only watched like his God, the introduction to the idea of God, like the first one, I read his 12 rules for life. I did his self-authoring thing. And I also have watched many, many, many of his clips and interviews, um, some of the political ones, some of the personal ones as well. But that was kind of when he was coming out and becoming more popular with his um, speech, being against speech, being codified into law that people can't say things. Um, so that's just to give my background. I would definitely describe myself as a fan of Jordan Peterson. However, I think that everyone has flaws and once they rise to a certain level, people begin to pick at it and that's just normal for anyone who rises to a certain level of fame. 
And I think a lot of that is going to be useful and possibly true. Some of it, I think, can't be true because we don't know as much as we think we know about people when they're in the spotlight. And then some of it, I think, um, a lot of the ideological stuff, especially, and not necessarily the character assassinations, um, I think those are credible criticisms that come from people because it's really easy to criticize someone when you see enough of their sides, which is what happens when someone is in uh, in the spotlight for a long time. By Jordan Peterson that we'll be kind of focusing on today. A two-hour lecture uploaded on his channel called Identity Politics and the Neo-Marxist Lie of White Privilege. And the first important thing I want to point out about this lecture is that Jordan Peterson doesn't provide any kind of real argument against the existence of white privilege. Doesn't ever work to prove that it's a lie. I mean, sure, he says a few words about how there are tons of factors that predict success in America and that race isn't the only one. I can't quite figure out why the postmodernists have made the canonical distinctions they've made. Race, ethnicity, sexual proclivity, sexual gender identity, let's say. Those are four dimensions along which people vary. But there's a very large number of dimensions along which people vary. Here's some ways people differ. Intelligence, temperament, geography, historical time. You live now and not 100 years ago. Attractiveness, that's a big, that's a big one. But, you know, that's a given, right? Nobody thinks that being black or white is the only thing that matters in a person's life. That's ridiculous. Instead, they believe that race is an unimportant factor. He just said that nobody thinks that's the only thing that matters in a person's life. However, that is the message that is out there from postmodernism and intersectional ide ideology. It would be great if people could somehow rank the impact of all the traits that an individual has accurately in how they impact their life outcomes, but they don't do that. They put people in boxes based on what they think is the most important trait. So I would disagree that nobody does that. I think a lot of people do that, um, like a lot of <laughs> people do that. I should also add, I don't believe in white privilege. I believe, I don't even know if I believe in the concept of privilege insofar that it's not some, it's something that only some people have. Privilege, I don't even think should even be a big thing. It's just something that happens um, because there's variation and the kind of attributes that a person possesses might help them succeed in life, but it's hard to figure out what the different combinations of traits a person has that helps them get forward. And also, just because they have these attributes doesn't necessarily mean that they don't have ones that are countering them that people don't focus on because of what they consider to be the important attributes in this day and age. And also that they might not even capitalize on them as well. And we might look at someone and assume to know how they capitalize and how much counterbalance they had to these traits. And we don't actually know that. And I do think that we, we meaning society, puts people into these categories and they are, they supersede anything else about the individual. So I don't think that's true that people don't do that. They absolutely do that. And maybe that's a fundamental disagreement in perception based on, I, I don't know this 
person, Big Joel's upbringing or what he hears in the news or just his life experience. But ever since I came to this country, my skin color has become the most important thing about me to many people where they're surprised because I think something that I they don't expect me to think and I had never encountered that before. And to me, that's reducing someone before beating the US. And to me, that, that is reducing someone to how they look and I encounter that everywhere. And the people I feel the most comfortable with when it comes to these things are people who are from where I'm from, who are my friends. And I know that they might not see things the way I see them, but I'm comfortable because I know they're not judging me just for what they see in front of me, but they know my whole life history and where I'm coming from and that I'm a complex individual, which is kind of what Jordan Peterson is asking, is saying that, people are complex and you're also saying that people are complex but I don't think that's actually acknowledged anymore if it ever was. In the way that a person will be treated in our society and that that is an unjust thing. Or at a few points he suggests that the scholarship trying to prove that white privilege exists is inadequate. This is another one of those fundamental differences because for me when I came to the U.S. I didn't feel like I was being treated any differently. Like I didn't feel like people were being rude to me. That could have to do with my personality too, but I came from a totally different culture and I was more other things like language stuff or climate or um, I don't know, cultural stuff that had to do with like cultural differences and not actually skin color. So that this this kind of thinking doesn't jive with my reality and then another thing too um about this privilege stuff is when you come from a society where privilege is defined in a different way so not in the u.s or not in the country or the social situation that you're in i mean jordan peterson is from canada but this conversation is sort of encompassing all of the west and pretty much the globe because so many people migrate to the West and the, are, or interact with the West through socially or economically through trade. It ignores the fact that privilege doesn't actually cross this specific line of race when it comes to so many of the people who are being discussed in these topics since they live in different societies where this privilege which as I understand it just means being at the top in some sort of thing like usually it's economic outcome and then you ascribe privilege after so once people are in a certain group they say that they they're privileged like that's why they they got there that's how I understand the term privilege it's just it's like something that people ascribe to explain why people got where they got they're like oh you were privileged that's why you are where you are now i think that because society has shifted so much in terms of the laws that existed like the segregationist and um racially unjust laws that existed in the past not considering affirm affirmative action which i consider unjust in the present because that has shifted so much and is not there, I find it very hard to buy the idea that people have this kind of privilege called white privilege. And I think the only thing that could justify that is the existence of the laws that used to exist in the past. And I would consider that actual 
uh, privilege. The characteristics that we have can be combined in so many different ways that it's difficult to say whether or not someone got somewhere because of their privilege, <laughs> I mean in their race in this context, versus all of these other traits they might have which could be called privilege but then you don't know how to balance that with someone's innate effort or what other negative negativities, the opposite of privilege, they encountered along the way as well. And none of that's taken into consideration. And you can't really when you're talking about groups of people because individuals are complex. And this is, of course, the one thing he'd have to show to prove that white privilege is a lie, but he never really commits to that argument. What is the scholarship that proves that white privilege exists? The only thing I've really seen is the income stuff, people talking about multi-generational wealth and uh, white people having, been be having benefited from what happened in the past with segregation, slavery, or government programs that excluded blacks in the U.S., but they helped white Americans in the U.S. Um, I think those are the biggest things. Also, encounters with the police, access to proper education. Those are things that I hear people cite for claiming that white privilege exists. All of those things, I don't think I can get into here, but all of those things, when I myself personally have looked into that information, I don't think that it substantiates the notion that white privilege exists. I'll try to be very brief. When looking at police interactions, I have a video called Why I Don't Like Black Lives Matter, um, Why I'm Not a Fan of Black Lives Matter, something like that, that goes into it for the income and the police interaction stuff, even the incarceration rates. I think that the way the data is presented ignores how other factors, other variables impact the outcomes. I won't get into it. And then usually when people counter with something like that, they're told that you're blaming the victim. However, that's pretty much my stance on statistics that have to do with income and um, incarceration rates and um, encounters with the, with the police. Um, the education ones, I'm not so sure about that, but as I understand it, a lot of money has been put into trying to make things better. And for me, I think the solution is more discipline, specifically because these kinds of harsher environments have been proven to work when children especially don't have fathers around which is a big issue when it comes to underperforming students. It's like they need that kind of very strict structure in order to flourish in. Um, but again, that comes down to the whole, well, they're gonna say you're criticizing the victim. And then the whole personal prejudice stuff, I think that should be a non-factor. I think as long as people can't hold you back with the law, then you're pretty much going to succeed if you have the, you're on the right path and you have the right mindset and are willing to, and are willing to improve your skills in the right way. And I think, the entrance of other groups to the U.S. who have done really well, specifically, I would say, um, East Asians and um, Indians and Jews. And I will start with those just because they came more when white supremacy was more of an impact and they get better over time. And I would also say in modern times, there are black people who are from the outside, not black American, uh, who come and they do really well. So there are other variables that sort of disprove what 
information how information is presented currently that is used to prove white privilege as i've heard it if there are other kinds of information that has been put out there then maybe you're talking about something else but even if you were i think they would be minor ones because it's always the status in society and income and how they're treated with police and the personal prejudice stuff and i think all of those things don't actually necessarily lead to well, I think they might not exist because of how the data is presented, and then they also don't necessarily lead to the negative outcomes where only white people are at the top. And then also with these statistics, they tend to, there's something really weird about American statistics where they only focus on whites and blacks and then present those data and compare them, but then there are other groups that do better than whites that don't get any attention and they should also be experiencing the opposite of the privilege that white people have. And then another thing, um, two is the way these groups are broken down again it's always these major groups but if you break it up more like with certain immigrant groups like Filipinos or Indian Americans if you <laughs> look at them as separate groups and you see more uh, granularity in the data that gives you a totally different narrative than the one that's used when it comes to white privilege so I was trying to be brief but yeah, this might be a long video. Privilege is a lie, but he never really commits to that argument in a more robust way. He just like isolates a personal, intentionally non-data-driven perspective on white privilege and is like, wee oo, wee oo, I'm the science police, that's personal and not even data-driven, wee oo, woo. The original paper on white privilege wouldn't have received a passing grade for the hypothesis part of a undergraduate honors thesis. We're not even close. There's no methodology at all. It was called white privilege and male privilege. A personal account of coming to see correspondences through work in women's studies. But he seems to outright ignore the amount of credible information we have on this subject that might be more compelling to him. What's wrong with the study indicating that black names on resumes are turned over far more often than white names are? Were the sample sizes just too small? I haven't looked into that, but <laughs> this is one of those things where I know I won't be popular with this. I don't actually believe that racial discrimination in this way necessarily leads to a group of people not being successful. I think time and time again, I have a video called a three-part series on inequality that sort of goes into this. Time and time again, groups who have been treated really badly get over that hurdle. So I'm not saying that that's right at all. And um, another thing too, a lot of the things I hear about discrimination is never turned back against uh, these groups. So are people given the same scrutiny for discriminating against white people? There's a lot of self-segregation in the United States from black people. I thought it was, I think it's really strange. I understand it in a historical context, but I think it's wrong no matter who does it. I don't think you should really judge someone based on something they can't control. And I understand that people do it because they think they're in a dangerous environment so they have to protect themselves, which would make sense, but I don't think it's necessary. Those groups, minority groups, I guess I would call them in quotes, aren't held to those same standards. If there is some sort of, oh, I'm going to help black women, for example, because I think they're treated badly in this country and I'm only going to prefer preferentially hire them and be very 
in-group oriented, they won't get any backlash from that from what I've seen. I've actually countered friends of mine who've said things like this to me, who I was very disappointed in. That's something else I've noticed too. And if you call in that kind of thing privilege, which is like nepotism, but based on race or just prejudice, I really want to see one day in the United States people being condemned for that. I think it's wrong, no matter who they are. So that's another thing. On that one, how about the historical and economic analysis claiming that property discrimination had a direct impact on the ability of black people to accrue wealth in America? Okay, this property discrimination thing is what I was talking about, about uh, multi-generational wealth. I think the fact that groups come in afterwards and do well in terms of income, yes, you can't account for wealth, which is different from income, but a lot of people who were white didn't actually have this multi-generational wealth. There are lots of white immigrants who came in after that as well. And they're always, they're just considered white, even though they may not have benefited from those things. And then you can't change the past. And we're talking about the present. And if those barriers don't exist anymore, I don't think that privilege exists anymore. And also, um, it's very important to point out that there are other groups who come into the United States who are not white or who are black even and who are doing well. Maybe not multi-generationally because they haven't been around long enough, but currently um, at, their income is, is pretty high, which is I think the, the thing to focus on rather than focusing on the past. And so in that way, this privilege doesn't exist. How about the literally dozens of papers about how black people are treated unfairly on basically every level of the American justice system? Boop, 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 boop. And I could keep going. Um, I looked at a couple articles on Stop and Frisk when the Black Lives Matter thing was going on. And I did find that it said that black people and Hispanics were more likely to be treated more aggressively, like in police interaction, that was not fatal. Um, so I guess just like roughing up. And I think, again, that's wrong. So that's the only thing that I found um, that sort of supported that. But then when it comes to the incarceration stuff and drug use and going to jail for non-crimes where there isn't actually a victim, it seemed like they were going to jail because they had offenses multiple times and those, and those rules would be applied to anyone. Another thing which will be also unpopular, what I say, is that I don't think that black people should be handheld when it comes to committing crimes. I think if you did something that you shouldn't have been doing, this is even when I don't agree with the laws, which is how I feel also about immigration stuff. Even though I think it's like these laws shouldn't exist, like if you use weed or something, I don't think you should go to jail for that because it's your body and you're not really affecting anyone unless you're, I don't know, driving or something. If you did something you shouldn't be doing, then it's very hard to defend you because you're a criminal, especially when it comes to violent stuff. So it's like they're comparing how white people are treated versus black people, but how about people, groups, like Asians who aren't even around the criminal system and aren't gonna get in trouble. And I, the other thing I don't like about this, and it sounds counterintuitive, is that I think it gives too much of an excuse. And I would really like to see 
not just black people, but everyone. I really don't like to see people defending people who aren't doing, who aren't upstanding citizens, I guess, in society, because I don't think it helps them to change. He's citing a 2013 study and a 2008 study, and I will have to look into them. Going here, but the important thing is, Peterson never addresses any of this stuff. It's not that I disagree with his interpretation of this robust research, rather, he just doesn't make an argument about it in the first place. Probably the case he devotes most of his time to making is that white privilege and its postmodern ilk is the modern form of militant totalitarian communism. Basically, he thinks that in order to maintain the lie that communism could work after the horrors of Stalinism took its toll, academics who wanted to continue advocating for Marxism had to replace their discussion of class struggle with things like identity politics and intersectionality. So much data on the catastrophic failures of communism had accrued that even the most intransigent of French intellectuals had to admit that the jig was up. But that's a problem because that's the whole ideology. You're going to just give that up? What are you going to do after that? Well, what happened was postmodernism was invented. And so it's a sleight of hand as far as I can tell, so, and, and with postmodernism identity politics. And while I don't think his thesis here is strong at all, while I actually think it's deeply misleading, we can see that it doesn't much matter here, right? Because even if he's absolutely right about the history of terms like intersectionality and white privilege, that's still not an argument against those ideas. If systemic racism does exist, and to be clear, it, it does, then it exists, and it doesn't really matter if the people- I don't agree with that. I don't think systemic racism does exist. And I was going to say that I do get um, where he's coming from with the replacing classism with identity politics, because the only metric that people use to define privilege is comparing groups group outcomes. It's the same arguments being made, but when it comes to race. So I think that's where what Jordan Peterson was calling a slice of hand, I think that's what he's talking about. I think that made perfect sense when I hear him say it. I guess for you, it doesn't hold much water. And again, I, I think something that really helps is coming from a different perspective, like not the US, and seeing how these things play out in other countries where they go after races or groups of people, sometimes divided by race because they're doing much better than others in the society. There was something that happened in um, Jamaica. I just read about it. I mentioned it in one of my very early videos where they had these riots against the Chinese because they owned so many businesses and so people basically said they were exploiting them and tried to kick them out. And then the same thing has happened with uh, Chinese in countries like Malaysia. The same thing has happened with um, Indians in um, Uganda. Um, I think the same thing has happened with Igbo people, depending on where they go. So this idea of blaming groups um, and calling, saying that they have privilege, undeserved gains, basically is what people call privilege. That's not new. 
and it has manifested itself along class lines a lot before and now it's manifesting itself along racial lines and i think that's what he's saying that you can see this pattern sort of being transposed onto a new set of populations um something else to note about jordan peterson at least for me i haven't actually watched his video on the lie of um, white privilege because I already had my thoughts on it before I guess I encountered him saying those things. So my experience with him is more along other lines than specifically the white privilege topic. And I'm just saying that because you might assume that people who listen to Jordan Peterson agree with him on this when they might not have even consumed his content within that context. If systemic racism does exist, and to be clear, it, it does, then it exists, and it doesn't really matter if the people talking about it are trying to pull some strange Marxist bait-and-switch. Concepts aren't true or untrue based upon the supposedly shifty ideologues who say them. Now- Okay, I have to play this back again, also. If systemic racism does exist, and to be clear, it, it does, then it exists, and it doesn't really matter if the people talking about it are trying to pull some strange Marxist bait-and-switch. Concepts aren't true or untrue based upon the supposedly shifty ideologues who say them. Now okay, I think what he's trying to say is that Jordan Peterson never actually refuted these articles, and he cited two that... and well, he cited to and mentioned more arguments for white privilege. He hasn't, Jordan Peterson hasn't actually refuted that. And so when he mentions the Marxist stuff, it's sort of a red herring. That's, I think that's what Big Joel is saying. At the same time, what he just said, where he said, and it is true, because Jordan Peterson didn't give him this evidence that I guess he could refute, He's also going from an argument against Jordan Peterson that Jordan Peterson didn't make. You could say that Jordan Peterson had the time to make it and didn't make it, but he's saying that, yes, it's true, but he also hasn't provided evidence against whatever Jordan Peterson is going from. <laughs> it's so hard to say what I'm saying. I don't consider what Jordan Peterson said a bait and switch based on my own research, and I guess this research that Jordan Peterson didn't actually expound on in his talk, I wouldn't call it a bait and switch, and I can't say that you saying that it's true makes it true either because you also haven't refuted why the arguments of all the people who think that white privilege is not true. Ideologues who say them. Now, I could give a few more examples here, but I think you see the point. And I sincerely hope you believe me when I say that I'm not ignoring the secret, real argument that Jordan Peterson makes in order to make my own narrative stronger. There would be no point to that. I think you are ignoring what Jordan Peterson is saying because I don't think you understand why he made that shift from marxism to identity politics i mean you kind of said it yourself and so you you don't understand that and then you also don't have the arguments for him being against white privilege and i guess that is jordan peterson's fault because he didn't expound expound on it enough in this particular talk 
and he might have at other times i don't know data driven wise guy in the first place no what i want to do is ask a question why does it not matter that Jordan Peterson never makes a real argument against white privilege? Why is his lecture nonetheless kind of captivating? Why is the audience eating out of the palm of his hand, likely to agree with him about this topic? Well, I can answer for myself. I didn't even watch that video, but I had already thought through a lot of this on my own. Maybe it's that he's only saying something that people already think, and it's not because they haven't thought of it before, but because they have thought of it before that they can be like, yes, you're expressing something that we feel like we can't say, maybe. And this is, broadly speaking, the question that I'll be spending the rest of this video exploring. And to do that, let's return to the wasteland. I don't think it should take long to convince you that Jordan Peterson essentially wants to be a modern T.S. Eliot. It sounds weird, but it's not all that surprising. Eliot himself was pretty far on the right, even calling himself a- Alright, I disagree with that. You can't assign that motive to Jordan Peterson. From what I understood, he sort of rose to fame because he was really good at talking. He was a professor. There were already tons of lectures of his online and people found it at a certain cultural point in time because of the whole speech thing. So I'm not sure that I would say that he wanted to become anyone or wanted to become so well known. He just knew that he could speak to people in a certain way because of his background and people wanted to hear him and that's kind of why they met and supported each other. So I would say that the assignment of a motive, you can't, well, you can't do that, but I think that's your assigning the motive. We don't actually know if Jordan Peterson had that motive. And that's important to mention because that also is framing Jordan Peterson in a certain way for anyone who's listening to you talk. Royalist. Like Eliot, Peterson believes that the world is losing its grasp on what really matters. We don't have much respect for tradition in the West, and it's a really, really big problem because the ethical responsibility of a human being is to take the dead culture, so that's the dead father or the dead god, and to revivify it with attention and communication. And like Eliot, Peterson comes to the conclusion that our response to this must be to take that meaning back in a very personal way, regain an appreciation for the traditional and healthy modes of being, assume responsibility, sit up straight, clean your room. At their core, Jordan Peterson's politics are a politics of psychology. To him, we are all Fisher Kings, and by far the most important thing we can do is to heal ourselves, set our houses. I don't know what Fisher King is, but I do agree that he sort of draws the line between the personal and the political, and he, that the whole, I, I think the term politics of psychology is apt, but I think you're going to go on, uh, Big Joel, to show why politics isn't personal or shouldn't be personal. In order. In the play The Cocktail Party by American English poet T.S. Eliot, one of the characters is having a very hard time of it. She speaks of her profound unhappiness to her psychiatrist. She tells him that she hopes her suffering is all her own fault. Taken aback, the psychiatrist asks why. Because, she tells him, if it's her fault, she can do something about it. If it's in the nature of the world, however, she's doomed. She can't change everything else, but she could change herself. We can see this idea come through clearly in a video called I've read some Marx and now I'm gonna change the world. 
In it, a student interviewer basically asks Peterson if he thinks activism is a good thing. And Peterson reacts to this question with a mix of skepticism and derision. You know, I, you go out there with a stick and a sign on it that says, I'm against poverty. It's like, yeah, no kidding, man. <laughs> really. Like, who's, who's for poverty? No one's for poverty. So it's, 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 it's an abdication of responsibility with the mask of social virtue. Seemingly, the vast majority of activists are inauthentic and silly. They use gauche and overly public stance. Something that I've really thought about politics lately is that it doesn't focus on real solutions. So the people who scream the loudest, the phrase I usually come up with, are more about pointing out who's bad and how awful society is. And I would maybe distinguish between those kinds of people and people who are actually like implementing better education or teaching people skills to help them move up in society. Like that kind of stuff I think is good. The kind of activism that's just, you're racist and um, we live in a horrible world, I don't actually think is that useful. And what I always understood from Peterson, and it's important to note that not only Peterson says this kind of thing, is that when you are able to just latch on to external issues, it's easy to ignore what's going on inside of yourself. And that's useful for someone who's experienced a lot of inner turmoil. And that can come, I think, in the form of politics. It can also come in the form of a relationship where you can focus on fixing another person, for example, rather than fixing yourself. So you, you can sort of put what he's saying into a context that's not just political. And I think that's really true. This is the part of this video that I heard in very short segments that made me want to respond was this idea that because he's telling people to focus on the personal means that they shouldn't go out there and try and help people. But the thing is, before you've sort of straightened out what's going on inside of yourself, it's very likely that you're projecting a lot and you're not actually out there trying to help for the sake of helping, but you're out there for the sake of avoiding your own pain. And I think before you deal with yourself, what you're doing is actually not that genuine. And so that's what I would say. I'm not saying that it can't possibly help anyway, but I don't think it's really coming from a good place. And I think it's more about tearing society down. And that's what I see in a lot of activism over here than necessarily actually wanting to fix problems that exist. That is my perception, and you probably wouldn't agree with it. ...as a way to virtue signal to their friends and avoid the bigger problems in their lives. You want to solve a difficult problem is you figure out how to get along with your brother, the one you've been fighting with for five years, or see if you can staple your family back together. See if you can stop fighting with your girlfriend and have a relationship that lasts for more than two weeks. What's more, most of these people aren't meaningfully helping anyway. While he's not opposed to civil action outright, he thinks that we shouldn't tamper with the functioning of the world until we are competent enough to do so. And competence is a surprisingly restrictive quality to Peterson. And they're usually people, well, they've had a successful relationship, they've had a successful family, they have a couple of degrees, they've established a business, like, mm -hmm. they've made themselves credible in five or six dimensions. I mean, I agree with that. I think when you're young, I watched a movie about, I think it was called Home, and it was about how we were destroying the environment, and I just wanted to go save the world. I still want to save the world, but it's much more tempered because you realize how complex 
the world is. And I think before you see that that kind of complexity within yourself, you're going to just go for like very simple solutions that many people have thought of before. And I think that's what he's trying to say is that we totally ignore the wisdom of all the people before us. And I do think that young people, I am still a young person, do this for sure. Your politics changes, I think, a lot by the time you get older because you're not so naive as to why things are the way they are. You can see that they're really screwed up and it is really screwed up and you want to change it. But don't you think many other people before you wanted to change that and for some reason they haven't changed it to the degree because the world is changing in positive ways a lot that you would like to see or many people would like to see so i do think that makes sense and i i don't disagree with what he's saying what he's saying i mean there are young people who are doing good things like i really like that ocean cleanup guy for example when it comes to super emotional topics if you haven't dealt with your own emotions then you're going to tackle that with not clear vision because it's clouded by your own issues that you haven't sorted out yet well then maybe you know enough about the world to dare to mess with its internal mechanisms and if you if you don't have that kind of in-depth knowledge then you should just you shouldn't you should no more work on the economic systems of Mm -hmm. western civilization than you should try to adjust the electronic systems of your automobile And this idea crops up over and over again in Peterson's work. Like, say what you want about the guy, he does not hide the high premium he places on personal psychology or the disdain he has for people who look to the problems of society. It's something any fan of his would immediately recognize. And looking at this, considering the fact that I am probably the sort of person that Jordan Peterson is expressing a distaste for, it only makes sense that he made me think about my own psychology, about what I'm doing here. See, I've always wanted to work with media, either making it or talking about it. I just love the stuff and have since I was a kid. And I like to think that now that I've had this amazing opportunity to make these videos, that I've been a fairly decent person about it, that I've had integrity. I've never said something I don't believe to be true. I've never intentionally mischaracterized somebody. You know, stuff like that. But I must say, I, as a person myself who doesn't like to hate on people, I think he is very respectful in the way he's presenting what he's saying. Still, are my motives pure? Does my work come from- That's an interesting question to ask because he, as I pointed out, assigned a motive to Jordan Peterson. From some perfect, healthy, helpful place? Well, no, I don't think so. I like attention. I I don't think that Jordan Peterson asked for perfection. I guess that he implicitly asked for people to come from a healthy place, but I don't think that he asked for perfection. So I would say you should be accurate with those words, Big Joel. Attention, plain and simple. I like getting money for being creative. I like feeling smart 
and correct about things, assembling an in-group of people who agree with me. And I'm not, like, qualified to be that kind of person, right? I don't have multiple degrees, I'm not a policy expert, nobody asked me to give my opinions when I first started, I volunteered them. At the end of the day, I love making videos, but it is a constant source of insecurity in my life. One defined both by the unending desire to be well-liked and accepted, and by the realization that nothing makes me fit to this task. That there's no big reason I should be doing it. This I'm not so sure why he just said that. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I guess that's cool that he knows that about himself. It definitely gives less credibility to what he's saying, but saying that will also make him much more likable to anyone watching as well, because they can relate. Is, I think, the power of Jordan Peterson. His ability to confront me, and I imagine much of his audience, with their own sense of angst and inner longing. The realization that there is an absence inside of us, one that takes up so much of our lives and that reminds us that we are not good, not pure, not well-intentioned. I would say that this is a feature of many people who rise to success and it has to do, I mean, he just, you just did it because you talked about your own personal struggles and when we do that, we connect with other people um, and so we connect with what's inside ourselves that longs to be acknowledged. I would say that that's not unique to Jordan Peterson whatsoever. And in some idealized way. And we won't find our answers to these problems in the issues of society, right? There is no policy change, no activism, no socialist utopia that's gonna get us out of this wasteland. To me, this sounds like he's misrepresenting Jordan Peterson because Jordan Peterson didn't say don't. He said first, first do this, do this first. So he didn't say don't do these things or he didn't say that these things aren't important. He's saying that a lot of people who do it haven't done this first and he thinks that's an issue. So why look to those issues in the first place? Now, I don't think it should surprise you that ultimately, I can't live thinking this way. I find it completely inadequate, and there's lots of arguments I could make to try to convince you that I'm right about that. Like, sure, I can agree that most people are broken and incompetent in one way or another, but I don't think that's a good reason to suggest that we not engage in politics and activism until we have solved those personal problems. I think it's a good reason to suggest that for what I said before about how you can't actually approach a problem well if your like, vision and where you're coming from isn't more clear. So... I disagree with that. I, I mean, I wouldn't stop anyone, but I think they'll probably just realize it on their own when they get older, because I, I think that's what happens to a lot of people. They have idealism, and then I think idealism is, is actually a good thing. I think it was, it's great when, if you can combine um, uh, both of those things, which is impossible, maybe if it's, com if it's coming from two different people. It's like if you had idealism also with knowledge, which I think does exist in some people that I've met in my life. It helps you to figure out 
what ideas will possibly work. After all, this is the fundamental cornerstone of democracy, either direct or indirect, that everybody should have an active voice in the way that power operates. I'm not always convinced that democracy is the best thing. <laughs> the majority isn't always right. I think everyone should get to say something, but only when they've done the prerequisites. And I don't mean prerequisites that are only accessible to some people, but prerequisites that everyone can have, such as educating oneself on a certain topic before having a stance on it. This is a different discussion, but democracy isn't necessarily the best thing either. That's totally debatable. Direct democracy. And I don't think that democracy is good because people are good, because they always know the best course of action we should take. No, I think it's good because I don't trust anybody else to handle that power better. The small businessman. I think that makes sense. An aggregate of knowledge is better than just one person or a tiny group of people deciding. For the most part, I agree with that. With five degrees might be a good leader. I don't know him. But I'm not just going to hitch my horse to his wagon because he's happy and has made a good life for himself. Rather, he needs to persuade me that he's going to do the right thing things. And the only way he's going to do that is if we both have political convictions that we care about and believe in, that we basically agree on what ought to be done. So I'm not saying that everybody's great or has to be a leader, but limiting civic engagement, concern, and activism to so-called competent people just doesn't work for me. Or sure, I could say. Well, it doesn't have to work for you or not work for you because people are free to do that anyway. But I do think that Jordan Peterson's advice is good advice. You will do a better job most of the time if you take the time to understand the job you're going to do before you do it. And you acting in the world is you coming with everything that's inside of you to approach a problem. And if you don't even understand everything that's inside of you, then you're coming with a lot of biases and possible imperceptions, imper I don't know if that's a word. That's not necessarily the best approach to have when you're solving a problem. It seems like for a lot of us, our problems aren't caused by society, but by our own psychologies. But that's one of those unfalsifiable claims that sounds good on paper, but is really hard to make categorical statements about. And let's take the standard example here. A guy, uh, let's call him Slobber, works at various retail jobs for 60 hours a week. He doesn't like what he does, and he doesn't make a lot doing it. Meanwhile, his marriage is falling apart. Lately, things have felt strained. He isn't as present as he used to be, and his wife is becoming increasingly unhappy about it. Now, just looking at this guy and his marriage, are there things he can do to make himself happier and make his relationship better? Well, of course there are. I'm not the ghoul of despair here to take away Slobber's hopes from him, and I believe there are probably a number of things he can do to make his marriage better. 
but that doesn't mean we can't ask broader questions about his situation. Like, is his lack of presence at home because of a deep psychological failing on his part? Or because he spends most of his life doing work that he finds torturous? Is his wife mad because he just doesn't have communication skills? Or does his lack of ability in this area come from the fact that he's constantly worried about paying the bills because his work pays next to nothing? See, Slobber should work on his life and marriage. I hope he does. But we don't need to confine our appraisal of his situation to that statement alone. This Slobber example that he's talking about, I think the answer to what he's saying is to look at the outcomes of people who have undergone therapy and put self-responsibility first. I think that would be the answer to what he's saying. Because yes, people are influenced by their society, but we also know that people who approach things from the perspective that the locus of control lies within them can change their situation. The answer to what he's saying, and I would encourage everyone to look into it, is this therapy stuff. And what Big Joel is talking about, it was very topical the personal stuff, the psychological stuff, pretty much everything that I've seen, it usually links back to childhood kind of stuff and sort of psychological programming that you have unconscious because it's just what has only ever been familiar to you and how that impacts your life and the trajectory that you go towards and how in a certain situation you respond to it. We'd have to actually look at these outcomes of people who do this kind of work and it's very important to note that what Jordan Peterson tries to put into the minds of people about fixing oneself is not at all unique to Jordan Peterson this self-help stuff and fixing oneself stuff he just gives his own spin on it with the mythical god stuff his well-being is inextricably linked to the society around him to the way that him and others like him are treated and as such if social problems exist then solving them will help slobber. Or I could say the- I agree that solving those social problems will help slobber. However, I think that people might approach solving those social problems in not the best way because they haven't solved their inner problems first. Something that you realize pretty quickly once you try to solve some of these issues is that you can't solve it for people who aren't willing to work on themselves because a lot of it has to do with them. So society can do so much and they should forever keep doing a lot, but a lot of people don't want to change. For me, the way to best help society is to reach the people who do want to change and are trying and they can't get there. But you have to also acknowledge that a lot of people are given opportunity and for many reasons, they don't rise to the occasion, the way to help them might not be through changing the external environment, unless it's changing the external environment in a way that helps them change themselves. Obvious point that I've already alluded to, that even accepting that everything Jordan Peterson says is true, it's just not enough to change the way that facts work. If I say a fact about the world we live in, and you respond that I suck and my house isn't in order, well, oh, well, is this going back to the white privilege stuff? Because I don't agree with that. What you're calling a fact, other people might not think is a fact. Everyone can agree on the sky being blue. Everyone can't agree on things like white privilege. So you can't be so certain that it's true, if that's what you were talking about. 
And, you know, that's the main thing I'm gonna need to hear to be convinced that I'm wrong. And look, I think those arguments are all pretty compelling, but here's the problem. In the scope of Jordan Peterson's analysis, they are rendered irrelevant. Because each of them, in one way or another, requires an engagement with what I'll call, a term I personally coined right now and that you can't steal, the sociological imagination. Our ability to situate ourselves, not just as individuals, but also as nodes in a complex society and culture. If we're gonna talk about the importance of democracy, or about slobber, or about the way that facts work, we first need to accept that that stuff is important to our lives, that attending to it might give us something of value. But the central thrust of Peterson's work is to obfuscate that possibility space. And so, in a very real way, I'm left without a foot to stand on here. I don't think you can really situate yourself properly before you've situated everything that's going on inside of you. So again, he made this point that I don't get from Peterson's work, which is Peterson's trying to obfuscate people deciding where they are in their nodes perceptually in relation to society and everyone else he calls it the sociological imagination. To me, he's just saying you should do this first because he thinks that's like the proper progression to do it as a psychologist. So I'm not hearing that he's trying to obfuscate those things. That's not what I hear. However, I guess because Peterson is saying that one should delay that, that equates the obfuscation to Big Joel, but that's not what I get from Peterson's work slash advice. What's more, it's undeniable that Peterson's narrative is a deeply appealing one. For one thing, it just feels really good. Like, okay, it's painful to think that my problems are my own, that the only thing standing in my way is my own failings. But it's painful in the good way, like hydrogen peroxide on a scraped knee. This is something that makes me understand that Big Joel has interacted with these ideas of Peterson's of sorting oneself out in an intellectual manner because going into your, what would he call it? Underworld, I guess Peterson would call it or something like that. It's terrifying. It's not like just some intellectual thing. It's like emotional. So I wouldn't <sighs> describe it as feeling good. This is my interpretation and I could be wrong, but the way he's describing what Peterson talks about makes me think that he's only engaged with it on an intellectual level. And again, for the, I don't know how many times, I'm just gonna say that what Peterson is talking about is not unique to Peterson. It's it's something for a lot of psychotherapists talk about this stuff, but they frame it in a different way in terms of self-responsibility and figuring oneself out. When you're a 24 year old white straight guy who's incredibly online, there's worse things to hear than you suck. I don't know what the demographics of Peterson fans are, I'm generally an outlier when it comes to everything in my life. So I can't use myself as a basis, but I definitely don't think that he should assume that it's white, young, 24-year-old males because this psychological stuff is important to 
every single person. And you can make your life better by doing good things. Mm-hmm. You want to solve a difficult problem is you figure out how to get along with your brother, the one you've been fighting with for mm-hmm. five years, or see if you can staple your family back together. See if you can stop fighting with your girlfriend and have a relationship that lasts for more than two weeks. It's certainly true in my case, and so reducing all of society to that conclusion has a pleasant and intuitive logic to it. But maybe more importantly, Jordan Peterson here is giving us one of the most priceless things imaginable, the gift of social apathy. The capacity to think and say rational things, but to not really care where that rationality might lead us. Obviously, climate change is a substantial global threat that we should work to ameliorate. He keeps saying these things, and I'm like, I don't get that from Peterson. I don't think that Peterson saying that you should work on these things first means that he's reducing society to this. He's saying that society is super complex, and you need to arrange certain things within you before you just go and project everything that's going on inside of you to try and solve these issues because you probably are not seeing clearly. That's not the same as saying that these problems don't exist. He's saying that the mechanism by which we fix this is to first fix ourselves as much as we can or more than we usually try to before we attempt to tackle these problems. I don't think that's that equates to reducing these problems just to personal issues. It's saying to tackle those problems first this. First, not don't. Intuitive logic to it. But maybe more importantly, Jordan Peterson here is giving us one of the most priceless things imaginable, the gift of social apathy. All right, I just said I, I don't agree with that Jordan Peterson is advocating for social apathy. It's just the approach by which you go about solving the world's problems. To think and say rational things, but to not really care where that rationality might lead us. Obviously, climate change is a substantial global threat that we should work to ameliorate. Obviously. But if you're talking about it and you're not an expert, you're probably using this pseudo-moralistic stance to avoid other, more personal problems. (laughs) I met someone recently who was saying that he was an activist in so many ways and then he realized that he needed to get a job. And the kind of person you are when you're just thinking about saving the world and you're trying to get all these other people to do things that do have jobs is not the same person who then has different priorities in lives. You're going to come up with solutions very different because you understand what it's like for other people in the world who are working and have mouths to feed. I think that's actually a good example for what Jordan Peterson was trying to say. An all-important observation to Jordan Peterson. The uh, climate, the global warming um, problem on the climate is something that needs to be tackled quickly. And they can't wait until they grow up and become prime ministers to do it. Do, do you think collective responsibility overrides individual responsibility in a huge issue like that? No. <laughs> okay. I think generally people have things that are more within their personal purview that are more difficult to deal with and that they're avoiding and that generally the way they avoid them is by adopting uh, pseudo-moralistic stances on large-scale social issues. Something to point out when he's talking about them adopting pseudo-moralistic stances on moral issues is that he's a psychologist. 
like he has had clinical practice and he has helped a lot of people with his work so you should i think take into consideration his expertise when it comes to dealing with what's going on in people's minds that's definitely something that should be given weight i think in this um, conversation so that they look good to their friends and their neighbors or obviously the gays should be able to get married but not if the whiners are talking about it yeah i think that sort of um reduction of peterson's arguments i'm disappointed in so far the video has been kind of okay making this joke and reducing what he's saying about people avoiding problems to implying that people shouldn't be for gay marriage <laughs> i think that's disingenuous i think is the right word intellectually so i'm just gonna ignore it australia is holding a plebiscite on whether to legalize gay marriage I'm against the Yes campaign, but only because it's backed by cultural Marxists. I'm curious to hear your views on gay marriage. Well, I would be against it too if it was backed by cultural Marxists, because it isn't clear to me that um, it will satisfy the ever-increasing, what would you call it, demand for an assault on traditional modes of being. Now, with regards to gay marriage specifically, that's a really tough one for me, because if the marital vows are taken seriously, then it seems to me that it's a means whereby gay people can be integrated more thoroughly into standard society, and that's probably a good thing. They're trying to uproot the traditional social roles that help me in some abstract way. And since postmodernists won't be happy even if they get what they want, and since I don't actually care about society... Oh... <laughs> I have to let him. I have to let him finish first. Care about society treating gay people fairly and equitably? Screw him. How did he get that? Because when Jordan Peterson said, "Okay, I got, I get that Jordan Peterson was saying that he's not necessarily for gay marriage if it came from the postmodernists because of their patterns in the past of seeming to want to just dismantle tradition without understanding the usefulness of it. That's why he might be against uh, gay marriage." I get that he said that, but he also said that it might be a good thing for them to be incorporated more into traditional society. And to me, that's actually him saying that he's for gay marriage, like that would be a good thing. But if it's coming from the cultural Marxist, then that's a reason for concern. So I'm not getting the whole screw gay marriage thing. That's not at all what I got from what he said. And that's what always happens when I engage intellectually with people who think differently from me. It's like, I see that they hear something and I just hear something totally different. I really do. And I don't interpret what was said in the same way. I think like that he didn't even say like anything towards screw gay people. That's not at all what I got. The gays can get what they want. That's fine. But is it too much to ask that they want it for the reasons that I tell them to? Is it too much to ask that they stay in their fucking lanes? And finally returning to his two-hour lecture, obviously Jordan Peterson doesn't have a real argument against the existence of white privilege. To have one of those, he'd have to examine about a million credible sources and come to the rigorous conclusion that they're all wrong. Did you examine a whole lot of credible sources? You cited two, and another thing for a lot of us who talk about this stuff is that we're not experts and we're relying on other people and for me, what usually it comes down to, to me is the statistics and the fact that the way it's presented is ignoring too much. Like every time 
for personally, when I've looked into topics, it turns out that there's more to the story than what's being told. I don't think that you've really disproved it either. Maybe we're all just looking at specific sources and relying on the intellect of other people and they have different conclusions and so we only select from a few. Another thing is that most things aren't black and white and so it's likely to be a bit nuanced. So instead of doing that, he'll seed at some point that racism probably does exist. Okay, racism existing is not the same as the systemic racism existing. So that's a jump from what he said at the beginning, the big Joel guy. It's like racism. People are kind of racist, or maybe people prefer their in-group. It's not that easy. Or maybe people prefer the familiar to the novel. But we all have privileges, don't we? And the impact of systemic racism isn't total, is it? And besides, that whole concept comes from people who advocate for a communist dictator, who hate the idea that individuals are important and complicated and should be treated with care. Prove that he's wrong on that one, or don't. It couldn't matter less. Jordan Peterson doesn't have to prove that white privilege is a lie because it is an assumption baked into the fabric of his work. If white privilege does exist, if people's lives and identities are informed by grand systems that are sometimes very unjust, then there is a world to care about that goes far beyond our own suffering and sadness. I want to point out that something that's unjust to one group of people is unjust to anyone. So, I always think that these issues should be approached from what's best for an individual. A lot of these issues that people have, say, like with police brutality or people being incarcerated for silly things, I think should be addressed just for those issues being issues themselves. My perspective also definitely comes from my being a foreigner in a foreign land. So a lot of what people call issues, I don't see them as color issues. I see them as power issues. And I see also in my interactions with people that not everyone fits into a certain idea of their privilege or non-privilege based on their skin color because their life experiences are different. And so I don't think you can even really be talking about issues like white privilege because not everyone has the same background just because they have a certain color. So I, I think the whole thing is just wrong and should just be thrown away. However, that doesn't mean that these issues shouldn't be worked on. But if people want to work on these issues, then they would be better helpful to society, in my opinion, and also the opinion of Jordan Peterson, and also others, including other psychologists, I'm sure not everyone would agree, it would be better if they figured themselves out first, because what they bring to a situation is going to be affected by what they have or have not worked on within themselves. And chaos. And we can't or don't want to think that, so it must all be a Marxist lie. I'm not going to pretend to be an authority on anything. I'm not your boss. <laughs> he just said he's not going to pretend to be an authority on anything. But he said that the racism existing was a fact. Um, that racism exists. So that was definitely him being an authority on something. And he cited two sources. 
I don't have an inroad to your soul, and frankly, I'm not trying to get one. So instead of asking you to renounce the work of Jordan Peterson and embrace me instead, I want to close this video by talking about one moment that I found really striking. Toward the middle of his lecture, Jordan Peterson invokes a passage of George Orwell's The Road to Wigan Pier, where he describes an impoverished woman working in the mining industry. I had time to see everything about her, her sack apron, her clumsy clogs, her arms reddened by the cold. She looked up as the train passed, and I was almost near enough to catch her eye. She had a round, pale face, the usual exhausted face of the slum girl who's 25 and looks 40 thanks to miscarriages and drudgery, and it wore, for the second in which I saw it, the most desolate, hopeless expression I have ever seen. It struck me then that we, meaning the middle class at that time, are mistaken when we say that it isn't the same for them as it would be for us, and that people bred in the slums can imagine nothing but the slums. For what I saw in her face was by no means the ignorant suffering of an animal. She knew well enough what was happening to her, understood as well as I did how dreadful a destiny it was to be kneeling there in the bitter cold on the slimy stones of a slum backyard, poking a stick up a foul drain pipe. This passage is so beautiful and sad, I think. This woman is suffering at the hands of a system that just doesn't care about her. And the most notable thing about her is that she understands that something's wrong here. We like to think that people in the slums can only imagine the slums. Wait, oh, who likes to imagine that people in the slums can only imagine the slums? I am not a part of that we. But this is not true. She is aware, perhaps innately aware, that this, her life, is not okay. And Jordan Peterson- That's true. That's why people have uprisings all the time. And goes on to say the acceptable things for a moment. How can we not want to help this woman? How can we not have compassion? You have to have a heart of stone if you, if you don't- if you read that you don't think, man, something should be done about this. It's really awful. But after that, Peterson skips forward in the book and quotes George Orwell expressing his distaste for academic socialism, how he thinks they hate the rich more than they love the poor. It would be a mistake to regard the book-trained socialist as a bloodless creature entirely incapable of emotion. Though seldom giving much evidence of affection for the exploited, he is perfectly capable of displaying hatred sort of queer, theoretical, in vacuo hatred against the exploiters. Hence the grand old socialist sport of denouncing the bourgeoisie. And you can agree with Orwell about this or not. I think his point is probably true to some extent, but it's not too important here. What is important to me about this moment is that this is the last we hear about this woman. He introduces her suffering, talks about how hard her life was, and then he talks about how the people advocating for her life to be better are bad and shouldn't be trusted, and then that's it. No more talk of compassion or of redistribution. Now we've made our points about her, and we can get on to the second half of the lecture, where we- <sighs> I think that Big Joel is making a um, moral judgment on Jordan Peterson saying that he doesn't care about this old woman and I think he 
doesn't have that knowledge. We talk about how activists are shitty and lying about racism somehow. Where we can recycle the same tired line about how we shouldn't give protesters too much credit and get the same facile laugh from the audience. I'm against poverty. You know, that's like classic protest sign. It's like, really? It's like, I'm against torture. It's like, it's so obvious. You don't get any brownie points for being against poverty. No one in their right mind is for poverty. Because to Jordan Peterson, relinquishing brownie points from some hypothetical activists protesting poverty will always, always be more important than the poverty they protest. No. Within the story of this lecture, the woman's plot is left dangling. In essence, she's still standing there, in that coal mining town in northern England. And you can almost picture Jordan Peterson reading by a lamp that her work helped to fuel. You can imagine him reading the words, Data diedvam damiata. Okay, his ending is becoming very imaginative and fictional and artistic, actually. And I'm not sure is really addressing what Jordan Peterson was saying about the woman and her poverty versus the academics who talk about it, but not necessarily helping, actually. Um, I think that for many people who didn't necessarily grow up in the best of circumstances, and then they see that the academic response to these issues are removed from what might actually help people because they've been through it themselves. They are the kind of people who can be upset with intellectuals because they don't think it's really helping. And so the fact that Big Joel has taken from what Jordan Peterson was saying, where he was illustrating that intellectuals do this, um, <laughs> taken away something different, I think, is due to the fact that Big Joel hasn't necessarily heard, um, I think someone who does a great job of pointing this out is Thomas Sowell with Intellectuals and Societies, one of his books, where he gives countless examples of the narrative spun from people who say they want the best being very far removed from the actual individuals involved and what is best for them, actually. So I think Joel maybe doesn't understand that. So that's why when he heard what Jordan Peterson was talking about, he came away with this sort of artistic, went off into somewhere else response, but at the same time is blaming Jordan Peterson for not caring about this woman. Maybe that's why he's had this response that it doesn't kind of doesn't make sense to me. Like, I feel like he just went into La La Land. <laughs> I don't really understand it. In the same way that I think the beginning about his father also was a little bit not relevant beyond the point of just connecting with the audience and his own personal thoughts on the topic. That says a lot because maybe in the same way that Jordan Peterson didn't elaborate enough on why he thought that white privilege was a lie, but many people in his audience probably, or maybe in other works, he explained this and many people in his audience already thought of it, so that's why he didn't need to go further. Maybe you, Joel, don't have the prerequisite knowledge sort of to understand what Jordan Peterson is saying because even just your response to Peterson reading this passage and illustrating a point, you're totally sidestepping kind of what he said 
and or what he was pointing out and bringing a totally different narrative from it about him just ignoring the old woman because he was making a point about intellectuals. He was making a point about intellectuals pointing out the suffering of people but then being totally intellectual about it and not actually helping. And I think you haven't addressed that and you're going off into something just artistic and somewhere else. Give, sympathize, control. And maybe Peterson is comforted by those words, but I don't know if I can be anymore. So that's the video. All right, so I watched this video and I wanted to respond to it because I thought it didn't really make sense. And I was kind of upset because I felt like he was misrepresenting Jordan Peterson. I think it was a good point that he made that I guess in that lecture, Peterson didn't actually explain why he thought that white privilege was a lie in certain detail. However, I do think that for many people who have probably listened to Jordan Peterson and possibly in previous works of his, he has explained that stuff. I also think that Big Joel didn't actually have the authority to say that racism, systemic racism exists and that white privilege does exist. And these two um, scientific sources that I saw in the video, one from 2009, one from 2013, and then he has some more articles in the description are only a little bit of the literature and it's from the literature of the side that agrees with the concept of white privilege. I also want to point out that this side of literature is the one that is way more in the mainstream and so it's almost impossible to not have heard much from it because it's pretty much pushed in your face all the time. Um, I think that he would need to go into the other side of the literature to perhaps understand where Jordan Peterson is coming from, but Jordan Peterson as an academic and presenting to his audience a certain thesis, I would agree should have expounded more. I haven't listened to the lecture, so I'm going off of what Big Joel said that he didn't really explain it more, but Big Joel's points don't actually say enough, I think, about the topic to come away with a, a conclusion. I myself, I'm going to look into the sources that he cited about the names. I've heard the studies a lot, but I haven't actually dug into the research and that's how I try to form my opinions on it because my experience as I've said is that the statistics if you pick them apart tell a different story than the one you hear. I also think that he has fundamentally misunderstood Big Joel what Jordan Peterson was saying about fixing oneself first versus not fixing society at all. I think that's a different message so that's not what I get from Jordan Peterson at all and I think that this was more of an artistic piece I didn't like that he assigned motives to Jordan Peterson um, and that kind of disappointed me because otherwise I thought the video was just him sort of saying what he thought you know which is okay oh and I also agree that people might listen in order to feel good but if you actually do what Jordan Peterson is talking about and a lot of other psychologists talk about, it's not something pleasant. And so engaging with something intellectually isn't the same thing at all. Oh my God, I'm still not done recording this video. I'm coughing up just a bit more energy to finish saying my final thoughts, which are just not enough for the topic at hand. I'll try to be succinct. Here are some points that I would like to make. The literature that Big Joel has cited is one-sided. When you want to answer a question, 
is systemic racism real? No one argues that racism, just racism isn't real. Or if white privilege is real, you actually have to go from both sides. And he's saying that Jordan Peterson didn't give him anything to rebut, but that was one video. Jordan Peterson has a whole library of works that are available with him talking about these subjects and so I don't think you can reduce whatever Jordan Peterson or his fans think down to one video. This is something that many people do so this isn't unique to Big Joel at all and like I said the fault is on Jordan Peterson for not giving specific data-driven examples that Big Joel could go off of. I do think he actually made some arguments but they weren't countering the evidence that Big Joel and people who take that side of the argument have in mind. And I completely acknowledge that. But when it comes to this literature, one question I have to ask is, how do you even get funding that goes against this narrative? How do you fund something where the default position is to say this white privilege systemic racism doesn't exist because most people get cancelled if they even suggest it and i know that sounds like i'm just putting a red herring out there to say that well the research can't even be done as an excuse for why that research isn't there but really think about the culture that we live in today if you talk about anything that sounds not okay and immediately you can be called a bad person it's not worth your career to do it. So how are you going to get the funding and the support and also for the second time to verify? That's just a question. If you have an honest research question and you can't even really take the time to get that data, then how are you going to answer the question properly? So that's a question that I have because the default position is that you can't blame the quote-unquote victim. Another thing that I wanted to point out is that at some point, Big Joe mentioned that Jordan Peterson was coming from the basic assumption that white, white privilege does not exist. But I would also say that Big Joe is coming from the assumption that white privilege does exist. That is an assumption for both sides. Like if you're on the side where you think it doesn't exist, you can say that the other side, that would be Big Joe's side, is coming from the assumption that it does exist. And so everything that comes forth from that assumption is sort of illegitimate to people who don't believe in it in the same way that Big Joe pointed that out. Another thing I wanted to say was where does it lead to when you focus on groups? Because that's the issue. People are not groups. They're not statistics. They're individual people with individual lives. And like I said very early on, he said nobody actually behaves as if these identities are the only thing that's are important to a person, but they do. You can be denied a job just because of your race. I'm not sure what percentage of the population in the U.S. is immigrant. I think it's like 13% or some number like that. It's a kind of high number. And all those people, like I mentioned, just get swept into this whole race power system struggle uh, that Big Joel is talking about when he's talking about systemic, race, systemic racism. And a lot of them are not black or white. But everything just talks about that. And it, it excludes people who don't have that generational power struggle to build up on whether in their favor or not. Back to this, how does it actually affect people? In the past, when you start blaming groups for their outward success or the unsuccessfulness of other groups, it usually ends up with two things happening. One, the group that's supposedly the oppressor being treated badly. And two, the group that's supposedly the victim 
being just treated as victims, which people are not. They have the dignity of being treated as if they are, they have some responsibility for the situation that they're in. Usually it's partly external and partly internal, but this kind of focus on blaming groups means that they're going to focus on the external reasons to change your life, which is kind of what you were saying in your video about the guy who was with his job. Whether he's going to think it's because of some issue he personally has or maybe he's working away and so can't enjoy his life. Both these positions take the extreme when it's probably a matter of both. But one side, which calls itself progressive, sort of tries to dominate the other side. And I think that is the way things are in society today. It's, it's people who think like me are arguing against the dominant ideology, not the other way around. And are these ideas going to actually help the people or are they going to be destructive? In the example of trying to get a job, it's really hard for most people to land a job. It takes a long time. Do you think it's better to encourage people to improve and maybe even create their own jobs than if they're failing, just blame it on someone else? Because maybe it's not due to someone just discriminating against them, but because other candidates are better. And if you give them the idea that there's a reason that doesn't have to do with them for why they're not getting the job, then they're not going to potentially get better so that they can compete because they already have a made answer. And that's not to say that you shouldn't try to encourage people to not discriminate. Well, first of all, I kind of think it's a bit unrealistic and you need to do it across the board, not just focus on one group. But at the same time, you might actually be holding that person back because they will live in a self-fulfilling prophecy of, well, I'm a victim, so everything I do, the response I get is a fault of the outside world. And I know that's not what people might want to be trying to do when they're pointing out these issues, but that could be the end result. And that's destructive to the people you're supposedly trying to help. Another question I have was, do you ever focus on the flip side of these group statistics? For example, do we focus on which groups pay the most taxes or which groups donate the most to specific causes? Do we ever focus on the positive? Because that's another side of the picture. Statistics are really funny like that. You can just tell one story and completely ignore the rest of it. Like I said, with the whole only focusing on black and white and not other groups and categories or how you decide to break it up, you will get a different story. I looked at the three links that he put in the description and one of them was a meta study, an opinion piece at the Washington Post titled, there is overwhelming evidence that the criminal justice system is racist, here is a proof. And it's a really long article and it's like a collection of many, many, many studies. I was actually relieved when I saw it because I can't justify the time to go through this. And at the end of the day, you would have to spend your life going through all of this data and you would still have other people who spent their lives going through all of this data and disagree with you because that's what we have right now. Is there a list that I can go to in the literature to see the other side of this? The, this particular author had some articles that he said were arguing the opposite, which was nice, but <clears throat> I don't have the time to go through all of this stuff. And I don't think it counters the issues about 
seeing people as statistics and groups rather than individuals. And in this same opinion piece, I only read the beginning, the author mentions it's not saying that there aren't people who aren't black. He said white, even though there are plenty of other people in the U.S. Don't also receive injustice at the hands of the criminal justice system. But let's just focus on black people because they receive injustice even worse based on these articles. I don't think that's a good way to go. I think it's inaccurate because, like I keep saying, people are not statistics. They're they're not statistics. The second article that he linked to is a meta-analysis of field experiments that show no change in racial discrimination in hiring over time. I kind of already addressed this. They're analyzing callback rates from all available field experiments, and I'm guessing that they held constant for variables like maybe which school people went to, maybe they didn't, or specifically what kind of grades they had, uh, relevant background knowledge that they needed to have, not just the degree title, because sometimes the degree title doesn't correlate specifically with the knowledge you have in your head. This article is basically saying that overt racial discrimination has declined a lot, but subtle forms such as not getting callbacks when you are high when you apply for a job still exist i don't see the point of going down this path they accounted for applicant education gender study method occupational groups and local labor market conditions that's to me not enough variables actually and i am biased because i actually don't think this is that important and i know i'm weird for saying that but i i honestly do not i'm not a scientist that can go Actually, I am kind of a scientist (laughs) and I'm not going to take the time to go through all of their methodology because that would literally take like three hours of my time to fully understand everything. And I've already spent a lot of hours on this video. And then the third link that he had included as his sources was a book called The Possessive Investment in Whiteness. How White People Profit from Identity Politics Revised and Expanded. And this is all the way from 2009. I think this is the one that argues mostly about property and wealth. And I kind of already talked about that. And it's a long book, which I'm not going to read. My conclusion when it comes to looking at this data is how useful is it to focus on these things and divide people into groups when people don't fit neatly into groups like that. This is only one side of the literature and even though Jordan Peterson failed to present his argument properly in that data-wise in that specific speech, there's the other side of the literature that's out there that has not been addressed by Big Joel. I also don't really think people will ever totally agree on it because it's a matter of focusing on your personal responsibility versus on the external world and that's always been a struggle. I would say that what I would like to see is for us to have very high standards for people. I think that's a sign of respect for them and try to make sure that we're instilling traits that we think will help them succeed in life rather than instilling the trait of being fearful of others holding them down. I think it's really, really destructive to have people operate in the world as if they are victims, even when other people are mean to them. I think it's an extremely extremely destructive thing and it's very sad for me to see and I'm very glad many many times I think about it I mean I'm just annoyed like I even beat in the situation but I'm really glad that I didn't grow up like that I'm sure that there are people who take pride in the fact that they're strong and they've overcome it but I'm very glad that I didn't have to deal with that 
thankfully. Oh my god, I think I'm done. Oh my god, I think I'm done. There were also three footnotes that sort of clarified some of his thoughts, but I think they're inconsequential to what he actually said in the video. Even though I might not have agreed with them, I am not responding because I am cutting myself off from any more response. I hope you guys appreciate this video, or even if a few people do, I think that would make me happy. So yeah, <laughs> that's what I think about this The Wasteland of Jordan Peterson video. Thanks for watching. Um, you can donate, just thinking aloud.tv slash donate. I will talk to you soon. Have a great day. Bye.